The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, 1967 to 1971, and your humble podcaster is not yet born. It's a time of turmoil all over the world, with music in the cafes at night and revolution in the air. The Beatles are topping the charts. For now, anyway, they'll soon break up. There's fighting in the Middle East. The Green Bay Packers have just won Super Bowl I. The summer of love is flowing into the Prague Spring, just as Vietnam will soon flow into Watergate. MLK and then RFK are assassinated, and Thurgood Marshall becomes the first black Supreme Court justice. Civil rights, human rights, student protests everywhere, Black Panthers, Hell's Angels, a Democratic National Convention exploding in the city of Chicago. Charles Manson terrifies, and Neil Armstrong leaps giantly for mankind. Your humble podcaster is not yet born, but his guest today, Beverly Goligorsky, is there, living through it, observing, and now she's written a novel set in those tumultuous years called Can You See the Wind? She joins us today on the History of Literature. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson, your host for the day. Well, for every day, really. 400 plus of these days, and we're not stopping anytime soon. How could we stop when we're in the middle of our Kierkegaard run? Three episodes. The first one under our belt came out on Kierkegaard's birthday, coincidentally enough, with fear and trembling up next, and then the diary of a seducer. Who would stop at that point? But we're taking a break from our Gloomy Great Dane. I know I should say Great Gloomy Dane, but hey, (laughs) Gloomy Great Dane makes me laugh. Sometimes I can indulge myself, can't I? The Gloomy Great Dane, and no, I'm not talking about Marmaduke or Hamlet, but Soren Kierkegaard, the philosopher slash theologian slash proto-novelist, one might say. Stretches of his narratives are like an experimental novel, I think could almost come out today. We'll hear all of that probably on Thursday, at least Fear and Trembling. And a week from Thursday, we'll have Diary of a Seducer. That's the schedule anyway. And we have Dylan Thomas sandwiched in the middle of those two. That one will be a treat. Scott Carter returns to help us look into the great Welsh poet. So... Beverly Goligorsky is the author of the acclaimed novel, The Things We Do to Make It Home, which was named a New York Times notable book, a Los Angeles Times best fiction book, and a finalist for the Barnes & Noble Discover Great Writers Award. Her new novel, Can You See the Wind?, is the story of a family bound together and torn apart. Why? 
because this is a time for struggle. And these, these are people who struggle for a better world in this time of struggle. A working-class family in the Bronx, a young woman who is an anti-Vietnam War activist, and in the midst of a relationship with a rising star in the Black Panther Party. Her brother, meanwhile, is a cop. Her other brother enlists as a soldier. Her sister wants to fight for women's rights, but she's afraid. Her eldest son may or may not have blown up an enlistment center. 1967 to 1971, people. This was a time to take sides, to take action, and to take sides. And families sometimes paid the price. Beverly will join us soon to tell us all about it. But first... Let's hear some literary news. This comes to us from the Guardian newspaper, which tells us about a little book, a tiny book, in fact, smaller than a playing card, which was written by a 13-year-old, and it just sold for $1.25 million. The most valuable literary manuscript centimeter by centimeter ever sold, probably. It's 10 centimeters by 6 centimeters. And as you may have guessed, it's not just any 13-year-old who wrote and published these poems. It was, do you need a hint? The year was 1829. Another hint, it was published in Haworth. And yes, this is by Charlotte Bronte herself. A book of rhymes, it says in careful block letters. Handwritten, but blocked out to make it look a bit like an actual frontispiece. A Book of Rhymes by Charlotte Bronte, sold by nobody and printed by herself, etc., etc. Kind of adorable. With rhymes spelled wrong and Charlotte spelled wrong, so the A is traced over to make it look like it's both an A and an R. It is not bad. Nice effort by the young genius. Uh, it was, it's one of the, <laughs> the book was long thought to be lost, but here it is. One of the little books that Charlotte and her sisters wrote for their brother Branwell's toy soldiers. We, of course, know her for writing Jane Eyre, a classic novel, but her ambition was to be a poet and gosh darn it. Almost said something a little harsher than that, because we have a villain in this story, Robert Southie, that stupid git. My apologies if git is a curse word in England. It isn't one here, but I'm not going to apologize too much because Southie deserves it because of what he said. Charlotte sent him some of her poems. This is Charlotte Bronte, my friends, one of literature's queens. And Robert Southie wrote back and said, literature cannot be the business of a woman's life, and it ought not to be. Well, if that's not prime... Gittitude, I don't know what is. Gits don't get much giddier than that. The giddiosity there is off the charts. He was the poet laureate of England, more like the git laureate. Okay, I'm getting a, a sign from my producer. He's waving around. Okay, he's. what are you doing? You want me to figure that out? Okay, he's, he's riding a horse. He's The horse <laughs> falls down. He's knocked it to the ground. Oh. He has a gun. He shot it in the head, and now he's beating it, and he's pointing at me. Okay, I get it. I get it. Beating a dead horse. Well, we're done with that and all the git puns, but come on, Robert Southey. What a thing to say. 
poetry is. Cannot be the business of a woman's life. You jerk. <laughs> you just wiped out half the field. And the half of the field that actually reads much more than men do. You deserve your snippet in the encyclopedia now. This is from the yourdictionary.com biography page of Mr. Robert Southey. It says, quote, A contemporary of the great poets Samuel Taylor Coleridge and William Wordsworth, Robert Southey, 1774 to 1843, is one of the best known of the unread poets. End quote. Unread. Because unreadable. He made a career out of hack work, becoming poet laureate, and producing nothing worthwhile, and along the way, throwing obstacles in the path of Charlotte Bronte, who fortunately kicked those obstacles to the side and kept going. But who knows how many people didn't do that or never got the chance or were snidely kept down by that person in power, and even so, Charlotte, maybe we lost some great poems. Maybe she was discouraged. Southie unread his poems. His poems are now selling for a a pound and a few p, if that, while Charlotte's just sold for a cool 1.25 million bucks. Southie. I've never read Southie, but I know of him, thanks to Lord Byron. Don Juan, or Don Juan, is dedicated to Southie, and here are the first two stanzas. This is Byron. Quote, Bob Southie, you're a poet, poet laureate, and representative of all the race, although tis true that you turned out a Tory at last. Yours has lately been a common case, and now, my epic renegade, where are ye at, with all the Lakers in and out of place, a nest of tuneful persons to my eye, like four and twenty blackbirds in a pie? Which pie being opened, they began to sing, this old song and new simile holds good, a dainty dish to set before the king or regent who admires such kind of food. And Coleridge, too, has lately taken wing, but like a hawk encumbered with his hood, explaining metaphysics to the nation, I wish he would explain his explanation. You, Bob, are rather insolent, you know, at being disappointed in your wish to supersede all warblers here below and be the only blackbird in the dish. And then you overstrain yourself or so and tumble downward like the flying fish, gasping on deck, because you soar too high, Bob, and fall for lack of moisture. Quite a dry, Bob. Hmm. Boy. Man, oh man, Byron is good when he's good. <laughs> he's May Westian, we might say. When he's good, he's good, and when he's bad, he's better. I'm getting the sign from my producer to wrap it up. He's just, he's he's giving the horse mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Oh, and now what are you doing? He's wrapping something around his neck. Oh, a noose! He's wrapping a noose around his neck and flogging. Okay, pointing to me. I get it, I get it. Beating a dead horse. Your pantomimes are not needed. We're talking literature here. We can talk in words. So congratulations to the purchasers of A Book of Rhymes, one of more than two dozen miniature books that Charlotte wrote. It was sold in 1916 for $520 and then disappeared. It was purchased 
and is being donated to the Bronte Society. There is a happy ending, which will send the the tiny book in a tiny carriage. (laughs) I made that up. But don't you wish that was the case? That they packed the little thing in a tiny little carriage pulled by two tiny little horses racing to Haworth, maybe guarded by a pair of tiny soldiers. The little book wearing a bonnet for protection from the sun, or maybe it's nighttime, and the tiny book peers out of the curtains now and then as the carriage bounds across the moors. Okay, that's the news from Glastown, Angria, and Yorkshire, and New York City, and I guess London, if we have to loop in Bob Southie, the insolent and overstrained warbler. We will be back with Beverly Goligorsky after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, The Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is novelist Beverly Goligorsky, who has just published her fourth novel, Can You See the Wind?, which takes a loving look at a working-class family in the Bronx during the tumultuous years from 1967 to 1971. Beverly Goligorsky, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. So I'm going to start with an anecdote that I think might help us tee up this era. Uh, I was born in 1971, and my sister was born in 1969, and she lorded that over me all through our childhood. She'd say, I was a 60s child, and you were a 70s child. And it it just was, <laughs> it seems like <laughs> America and the world went through a transition from the 60s to the 70s that's pretty dramatic. So what drew you to the period in particular? Well, I was very active in this period. I was born years before, during the Second World War. Mm -hmm. And I was very young when I became involved in civil rights, which was really the end of the 50s, the early 60s. And it was a period, you know, the 1950s were kind of like 
a vacuum in culture. Mm. And a lot of young people, as I was then, were kind of turned off by the materialism around us and the lack of a sense of importance. What is my life for? Why am I here? What do I do with it? And then the civil rights movement was up front during the early 60s, and it became evident that there was something more important than each of us individually. Mm. And I think that the effect of that really brought people together. Now, certainly students were brought together first because their individualism was, you know, broken by the fact that they had other people that thought like them. But there was a lot of restlessness and the resentment of all the materiality and what was life about. And I think that certainly brought me to that period, although I grew up in a very mixed neighborhood of the South Bronx, and I think I probably was anti-racist with my bottle. Because I just, you know, it never even occurred to me to be anti-racist because I grew up with black people. Yeah. So it was just what life was. And But I recognized the racism as I got a little older in my own community. Hmm. And sexism, too, although I didn't understand it until the late 60s and early 70s. Right. Okay, so are you marking 1967 to 1971 as sort of an end of that era, kind of a loss of innocence moment? Not totally. Hmm. Um, I, I think that it works for the book, for the novel, because the shorter the period of time, the more intense the characters can be in dealing with the life, you know, I mean, literally, the period could have started in 1961 and gone through to 1976. This women's movement was very heavy in the 70s. But that didn't work for the novel itself, because the novel had to capture the intensity, and therefore it had to be around the particularity of these people. Right. Okay. So we've mentioned a few of these already. I just want to kind of get them on the table there. We've got Vietnam. We've got the rise of the women's movement. We've got the Black Panther Party. We've got the Summer of Love as it sort of gives way to Watergate or whatever comes after. And we've got baby boomers coming of age and, and leaving their teens and entering their 20s. So how does all of this affect working class families in the Bronx? You know, Working-class families in the Bronx were affected less by the protests and demonstrations Mm. and more by the war because Vietnam was a working-class war. Black, brown, and white working-class kids, they fought the war. And so families were disrupted either because at that time, working-class men married young. And sometimes they had children by then, but they didn't have the four children that were necessary to keep them out of the draft. I mean, students had deferments, but unless you were in a situation that was very special, you were drafted. And those who enlisted basically enlisted for the benefits, you know, health care, like Richie in the novel. You could get health care, you could get a paycheck, and hopefully develop a career. Yeah. So... Families were disrupted, and of course, once the soldiers came home, the disruption really never ended Hmm. because so much happened to the guys who came home from there. Yeah, right. And they were uh, living with 
the generation ahead of them, which had maybe known World War II or the Korean War. And there was a lot of misunderstandings between those two generations. Yes, I think so. I think so. I mean, I think that the young men in the 60s that were drafted already had a whiff, you know, it was in the wind, a whiff of change, Mm. a sense of what can happen that they didn't feel able to do, that they didn't feel able to, to plug into, you know, because they were being drafted like crazy. And that's where the students came in because the deferments allowed students to actually fight against the war and help to build the anti-war movement. This included men and women, but I'm mentioning men in particular because at the time it was just men that were drafted. Yeah, right. And so it also comes out of an era of a lot of not not just protest, but activism and a desire for change and a, a desire to affect change. And there had been the civil rights movement and there had been just a lot of uh, feeling that the government needed to be responsive to the will of the people. But there's also at this time, it seems like there's this divide between people who say, uh, the best thing is to win at the ballot box and maybe protest nonviolently. And the people who said more is called for, this is too important. People are dying. There's So does that play out in your book as well? Well, I think it plays out in the book in the sense that the characters start out from a place where they do not necessarily understand political sustainability. And my main character, Josie, she gets involved because she has a sense of injustice and doesn't like injustice. And so she gets involved on a very personal basis. But the personal does become political very soon. Mm. And and one of the things in the novel, which also happened to so many people in life, was that sense that there was something more important than oneself, a world view was being was happening, you know, and, and the very movement itself went from civil rights to anti imperialism on one level to a form of anti racism to absolute understanding of the oppression that black people and brown people were going through. That development also felt good and it was allowed to be expressed through actual change. I mean Vietnam won its own war, but the anti-war movement had an effect on consciousness, just the way that Black Lives Matter recently had an effect on consciousness. Not enough, more is needed, but that kind of thing has an effect on consciousness, and we sorely need it right now. Right, right. Okay, so let's take a quick break and then come back with Beverly Goligorsky. I'm going to ask you about uh, more about the characters in your novel in particular. Okay.
Okay, we are back with Beverly Goligorsky, author of Can You See the Wind? And I'm interested in uh, the themes that you're seeking to develop and how those play out in the characters you choose. And I'm sort of, for some reason, I can't get all in the family out of my mind. I think it's my, it was probably my introduction to the Bronx and (laughs) working class uh, family in the Bronx. And I can imagine Norman Lear saying, well, we'll have it be about uh, this, this bigoted figure at the heart of it, Archie Bunker, but let's give him a black neighbor. Let's give him a sort of a hippie daughter and an activist son-in-law. And these will give us this tension or conflict or let people, you know, articulate their positions and so on. So with that in mind, with that example in mind, I'm interested in what characters you put into your book, the major and minor characters, and how those reflect the different approaches to the political questions of the era. Yes, I'm going to answer that. I'm going to say something ahead of that, which is that what what one of the things that became very clear in the social justice movement, if you want to call it that, the combination of anti-racism, anti-sexism, and anti-war, was that there was still a great deal of racism, Mm. and still a great deal of sexism, and still a great deal of nationalism. And that had to be fought in a very, very large arena. That also was fought in families. And certainly in white working class families, racism was pretty bad. Um, and certainly was maybe even less so in the Bronx, in the South Bronx, because we were such a mixed multi-ethnic and multiracial area. Mm. And I mean, um, so, but but in white working class areas of the country, um, I would imagine that it was even more pronounced. At any rate, in my novel, um, the several characters do represent kind of what that was about. I mean, the main character, Josie, being someone who develops politically, and um, then there is the Black Panther, who is very clear about racism, and then there is Richie, who enlists in the army, because, not because he's gung-ho, never was, never would be, but because he has no understanding and no way to, to figure out the rest of his life, and the army seems an easy way to find a form of life that will give him a sense of life, a sense of importance. Mm-hmm. And of course, he's very wrong and comes back quite damaged. Nevertheless, um, that's his choice. And Johnny is a cop. And I've often felt with the police that I've known grown up, growing up <laughs> that it's kind of a thug with a gun, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's unfair, I'm sure, at some level for some, you know. But there are Two two kinds of, I mean, I feel that Johnny went in because he wanted civil service and, and, and he wanted to be able to have security because that's what half the people that I knew in the working class did. But once he had the power of being a cop, the power of the state behind mm-hmm. him, it's it's corrupt. You know, you it cannot but be corrupt. And you really need to work at it to not let that happen to your mind. So, I mean, in that sense, Johnny really represented an inability to see past only what he thought is right. Yeah. You know, I once did a ride-along with some police officers where they let you uh, ride in the car with them for a—it was an overnight shift, so from, I don't know, 8 8 p.m. to 4 in the morning or something— 
And uh, they assigned me to this woman, and I asked her why she wanted to be a police officer. And she said that when she was a little girl, she was in the car, and they were riding on the highway, and they came across a an accident. And there was a police officer who was out there directing traffic and, you know, helping people who were, you know, covered in blankets, you know, huddled in blankets and so on. And she said, I knew from that moment what I wanted to do was was to do that. And then I asked someone else, uh, you know, we met with another officer on a break and I asked him what he wanted to do. And he said, I loved the idea that I could pull over kids from my that I had gone to high school with and they would be <laughs> trembling when they <laughs> and I thought it's it's no wonder they assigned me to ride along with her and not him. You know, like she's probably the best they had to offer. But it does seem like there is something about that um that that power that can uh whether people go into it because of that or whether it it transforms them when they have it, that it's a dangerous um it's a dangerous power that we invest them with. Yes, yes. And I and I, I think it's not just the gun, but I also think it's the, you know, it's a very interesting thing what solidarity does. It certainly helped us in the movement. I mean, solidarity gave us strength. Solidarity gave us a sense that we could make things happen. It's the same with any large group of people. You are not alone. And, of course, you know, that is unfortunately the way people in this society are feeling right now, powerless, alone to make change. And although there are small pods and groups that are trying so hard to make change, they're not visible enough yet, and they're not, um, they're not out in the streets. And, of course, with the pandemic, that would have been impossible, although Black Lives Matter did do that, you know. Um, at, but, yes, yes, I mean, I think it's, not, it's more than just the gun, you know. But there is also that sense of security. So many, for example... Young men, even today, join the volunteer. They volunteer for wars because there's a sense of security in volunteering. Mm. It's not necessarily that they're gung-ho. I mean, half, I don't really know the numbers, but many of the guys that came back from Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, they had the same feeling as the guys in, in Vietnam. Why am I here? Who am I killing? Why am I doing that? What am I helping? You know, I mean, there are the few that think they're, you know, gung ho. We're we're protecting all of our children and our wives and our women. But I don't think that's the prevailing view. I really don't. I think that used to be the prevailing view in terms of media, which is that sense of victory culture that this country has developed, which I don't think works anymore. By the way, which is probably why Biden had to get out of Afghanistan besides mm -hmm. losing. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So we talked a little bit about how so much of what we view here is through the prism of men and should men volunteer for Vietnam? It was do they volunteer, wait to be drafted or dodge the draft? And you write beautifully about working class women. So what were they facing in particular? You mean during that period or in general? Yeah. Well, um, I guess I guess let's say during that period so we can stick to your book. Right. Well, during that period, one of the things that happened in relation to the war was that a lot of the men in their lives came back with problems. And substance abuse was a big deal at that point in the South Bronx. I mean, cocaine was going mad because 
they started doing the stuff in Vietnam yeah. and came back wanting more. And it, it really, Coke was like a thing in the South Bronx. And that, of course, broke up families. And it's always the women that were left to pick up the pieces. It's yeah. always the women that had to deal with the children. It was always the women that had to figure a way out of every dilemma. And it was the women who had to take care of wounded soldiers. So the oppression of women was very high during the war. And of course, the women's movement, when it started to burgeon, started to get bigger and well-known, at first was poo-pooed by women in the working class because they felt, oh, come on, go get a job, you know? It was that kind of attitude. But you know what? Little by little, especially through consciousness-raising groups, of which I was not only a member but started many of them, um, women began talking to each other, and that was all over the country and in every single borough of New York for sure. And women began to see that other women were going through the same thing. And again, that solidarity thing, learning you are not alone gives you strength. And and so the women's movement slowly but surely began to identify what is oppression, how is it working, and it is political. It's not just personal. If it were just personal, we have to solve it alone, and that's impossible. Yeah. So, of course, it has to be political. So, you know, it was, it was you know, and when we, we had demonstrations, we always had the slogan, free our sisters, free ourselves, out to the people. That was the slogan. Was there a feeling among women of the era that they had to stop the war, that it was going to be up to them to stop it? No. Yeah. I don't think so. I think that women that I knew and the men that I knew both felt very strongly about not in our name. Uh, that this that war in particular and the ones even after. But, you know, if I could... Um, divert for just a moment, you know, it's sort of interesting that the wars that came after 9-11 had a different response because people were confused and afraid. And so, for example, there had been a huge anti-Iraq demonstration in 2003, but it didn't sustain. It wasn't followed up. And it was that confusion and fear that allowed the government to become so belligerent and start all these wars. And it was sad and true, but I don't think that was the way it was in during the Vietnam War. I think at that point, the fact that there were people out there who were saying the kinds of things that people were thinking in their houses was very helpful to people. Mm, right. It's so... That era and the the divisiveness of it, the polarization of it, and the where people landed on it on issues like uh, women's rights and marijuana, and especially the Vietnam War. I mean, it. it I was going back through elections in my mind, and I remember 
uh, George H.W. Bush and Clinton, and Clinton was the draft dodger who had smoked but didn't inhale. And then we had, right, you know, right. George W. Bush versus Al Gore, and it was the same thing. Where were you in Vietnam? And John Kerry was a, a hero but a protester too, and, and right. Hillary Clinton was suddenly, oh, she's the emblematic person from the 60s and the, the women who started going to law schools and so on. It's, it, it, Barack Obama had said, you know, that's— that's not my era. I'm not from Vietnam, but but here we are again with Trump and Biden and it's it's like it's almost like that we can't get beyond this question of how did you respond to the 60s and the 70s? Uh, is that how you look at it as well or do you see it as fading in importance? No, I don't see it as fading in importance. Yeah, I see. I I have my 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 philosophical outlook is that we must always learn from the past, not just because we fear to repeat it, but because there's things to learn. Mm-hmm. And I think that the sense of powerlessness among people and the division of the country right now between the right and the left, which of course was helped by Trump, no doubt about it. I mean, he really. He, he did a lot to allow the, the most racist people come out of the woodwork. He gave them permission, and so we're struggling with that right now. But I, I think that the country has reached a kind of height of individualism, which is a very destructive thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, because individualism doesn't allow for the collectivity, the community, the solidarity that mobilizing for change needs. And I think it's a dilemma. And I think that, you know, those of us who are trying to change that have a long way to go, but we can't stop. Yeah. How much of this is because of the Internet, do you think? Well, I don't know if it's because of the Internet, but it, I think that the I think social media, whatever good it might do, has an effect on isolation. I think it isolates people. We all deal with the computer on our own. We all listen, talk to, do whatever with the computer on our own. And then there's a call to mobilize, and we go back to the computer on our own after that. There's no sustainability. And we're not really with other people. It's a, it's a false sense of collectivity. And I, it's dangerous, actually, you know, and it's very scary. I mean, at my age, having being able to look backward like that, I do find it scary. And yet I know that we have to use technology to move forward. And that's what the struggle is right now. Right. It is. I I feel like when I feel myself being part of a community, I the, the main thing that gets me out of the house these days is my uh, children who are in high school. And so I'll go to these sporting events or these concerts or something, and I'm sitting shoulder to shoulder with uh, friends and friendly people, and we can get along, we can set aside whatever differences we have, and we're just rooting for our kids, you know, on the soccer field or the basketball court or something. And and you kind of develop this, this um, a, a camaraderie and an understanding. Yep. And then I go and I I'm on Facebook and the same people I'll be friends with and I'll think oh my goodness this person is is really out there they're they're an extremist and when I see what they post or what they link to I scary. think yeah it's scary and it makes me not want to be around them and I think it is 
it is almost too bad that everyone has this voice and everyone is so politicized because, I mean, in a way, I guess you could say I'm seeing their true colors and all of that, and that's good to know. But I also feel like if we had more of the uh, let's go to the kids' concert and hope they're all learning how to play the trumpet uh, and we could connect on that level rather than I'm going to forward this article that someone else wrote a million miles away from here and sort of got me angry and I wanted to get you angry as well. Uh, We'd have a sort of, uh, I don't know if this sounds too kumbaya, but um, it's something I've noticed. You're right. I mean, there's being with other people, whether they're of like mind or not, you know, I mean, I have been in situations because I, during the 60s and 70s, I did organizing also, where I was meeting with groups of people who really did not think like me. Mm-hmm. You know, I met one group of people who, after the word black power became important, put up signs that said white power. Mm-hmm. And and I never went alone. I always had a collective of people. We went together into the neighborhood and we talked to, at first, the men and women and then just the women. And we found that the women felt, found it easier to deal with change. And it was very rewarding. One example is we wanted to see a child care in a neighborhood that was pretty racist. And when you come into a, a, a racist neighborhood, there are a lot of other belief systems that are not so good as far as I'm concerned. And so you have to kind of chop away at some of those belief systems. So we went in there because we understood that a lot of the women wanted to get jobs, but they had a lot of children and they couldn't leave their children. And so we came, you know, we we passed out uh, flies or whatever, whatever. We got a meeting together and the women wouldn't come without their men. And we said, fine, you know, that's cool. Bring the men, you know. And, of course, some of the men just got bored after a couple of meetings, and they left. And eventually the men that stayed saw that we weren't there to hurt their children. And we did start a child care center. Hmm. And it was a very successful organizing situation. But that has to happen across so many venues and so many places and so many zones. But that kind of reaching out to other people, even if they don't, believe the same way as you do. I mean, I fear that the Democrats, for example, are not going into rural areas and organizing. I fear that there's just so many people who might be reached where there's no attempt to reach them. Hmm. And I don't know how to change that at this point in my life, but I'm hoping that at some point young people will get the message and do it. Yeah. I can tell you, I grew up in a rural area in Wisconsin, and I I felt like there were two main sources of information when I was kind of coming of age in the 80s. And one was the right wing radio networks, the Rush Limbaugh's and so on. And the other was unions, that people were getting their news of the world and of politics because there were there was a General Motors plant and and they were, you know, half the town was in this union and they would hear that, you know, basically we're getting screwed because of this or or we need to fight for that. And that's gone away. That piece has yeah. completely gone away. Those factories yeah. are shuttered and there really has not been anything that would replace it in terms of the effectiveness mm-hmm. of having working class people hearing mm-hmm. that voice that message it was so it's so important i mean 
the unions are a particular example of success for so many years, and uh, starting with Reagan, their demise. Mm. But they are kind of firing up again right now in small ways. I mean, whether it's Starbucks or Amazon, which doesn't represent necessarily working class, but workers there do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a kind of spark, a little, you know, that spark that can start a prairie fire. It's kind of there again, and and it may spread. And I mean, you know, the question of how do you make things happen Sometimes you have to be somewhat extreme in the sense that during the 60s and 70s, there were unions that didn't allow supplies to be put on ships to go to Vietnam. Mm. They just stopped. They just stopped loading the ships. And that they were union men, and they understood that they didn't want the war to go on. And it was because their consciousness was being changed by what was happening in the society. And I fear now that that consciousness is going the opposite way and needs to be battled. Do you think, from your vantage point, that one of the legacies of the 60s is a kind of cynicism that change can't happen, or that the people who were out there protesting in the 60s, a lot of them ended up becoming the yuppies of the 80s and so on. Do you think there's there's kind of a feeling that only suckers would be hippies today? No, I don't feel that way because I see the remnants of that period in a different way. For example, I see doctors, I see professors, I see teachers that came out of that movement that are still trying to change consciousness. Mm. I do not see cynicism. The cynicism is media. Mm. And that has been a problem all along. During the 60s, 70s, and part of the 80s, we had an alternative media. There were so many magazines, so many uh, newspapers that were not the New York Times, that were not the Washington Post, etc. Not, you know, I read them both, but that's not the point. The point is that there were alternatives. There were many women's magazines. There were many women's newspapers. And all of those things were also changing consciousness. You read them as well as the mass media. But the mass media tends to be either right-wing or moderate. Uh, and even when it's liberal, it doesn't probe. And so we have a problem without that alternative media. And little by little, I think people are trying to change that. Some of it is online, and therefore it is not doing the job that you can buy a newspaper and read it on the subway did, you know. But now with smartphones, who knows? I mean, maybe people are doing that. I'm not sure. I hope so. Yeah, right. Uh, And so... Do you think we learned anything about how to bring about change from the government that's useful? Do we have tools now that we didn't have in terms of pressuring the government to make changes or understanding our own role in relationship to government? Or do you think that we're still sort of, um, you know, in the same places we were in the late 60s and early 70s? No, I think that, I mean, this is where... I feel that history is our friend. I mean, from changing from Social Security, unions, changing to the eight-hour day, all of those things, including the 60s and 70s, really prove that the only way to make a government work is from the ground up. 
you have to make them do it. That that is the lesson that has gone through the entire century, that you must make the government do it. And I think it was Franklin Roosevelt. I'm not sure, at least mythically, he said to someone, make me do it, when he was talking about the New Deal. And, you know, you think about Build Back Better or the Voting Rights Bill. We need to make them do it, despite the Republicans. We, I mean, suffrage changed the, chained themselves to the Capitol doors, you know, wanting the women's vote. I mean, we ha- that is the way you make them do it. Nothing significant in the United States of America has occurred from the revolution on without people from the ground up making it happen. Okay, well, the novel is called Can You See the Wind? I'm going to end on that <laughs> that rousing call for action. <laughs> Didn't mean to get off like that. <laughs> the novel is called Can You See the Wind? And it comes highly recommended by Farah Jasmine Griffin, who's a friend of the show. She's up there among my favorite writers and thinkers and, and guests. She was amazing when she joined us here on the History of Literature podcast. Can You See the Wind is available in bookstores everywhere. Beverly Goligorsky, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you, Jack. Thank you so much. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Beverly Goligorsky, still going strong. We will look forward to her next novel. And in the meantime, please do check out Can You See the Wind? My thanks to the Brontes and Lord Byron, a sneaky cameo from him today, and to all of you for choosing to spend some time with us. Kierkegaard and the story of Abraham and Isaac will be next. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.